We're speaking today with Mike Carlson, writer, critic, and sports commentator, well known for covering American sports here in the UK, including the NFL for Channel 4, and the Super Bowl and 2012 London Olympics for the BBC. Mike? Yeah, we'll be doing the Super Bowl for Channel 4 this year. So Are make, you? So it'll make a change, yeah, because they've got the whole package this, this season. That's interesting. When is the Super Bowl? February 2nd. Perfect. We'll be looking for it. So, Mike, it was pretty amazing to see Wembley Stadium, the home of English football, play host recently to two sold-out American football NFL games. And there's Channel 4's NFL broadcast that you're involved with. And at the same time, NBC is broadcasting every premiership English game live. Uh, in the U.S., and I read recently that David Beckham's trying to get a soccer team going in Miami. So what's going on here? Um, is the famous sporting divide between English and American football disappearing? Not really. Um, what's going on, basically, is the worldwide progress of television uh, and the, the market for television becoming more worldwide. Football in this country is still very much a minority um, interest, but it's very good television programming. It, there's no sport, I think, that actually is better on television than American football, in, if you're willing to sit down and spend the time it Why requires, is which is one of the big things, problems that British have with it. Um, because the, the sport fits the screen, and because the stoppages in the sport basically allow, in fact, demand that they be filled. And things like instant replay, isolated cameras, were developed to cover American football because you had the time to use the result. If you're covering a soccer match, for example, you can't really show instant replay unless there's a stoppage on the field for some other yeah. reason. But in American football, you had all these 40-second periods where there was nothing happening except one one team in a huddle and the other team waiting for them to come out, and you needed something to fill it. And, and back 50 years ago, that's when, when instant replay was developed. So um, as spectacle, it's done quite well here. In the States, you have a kind of different reaction to, to soccer in the sense that it's the biggest particip biggest growing participant sport in the country. There's more kids, apparently, now playing soccer than baseball because both boys and girls are playing soccer um, at that level. And it hasn't really translated into following the sport, per se. In other words, kids go to school and play soccer and then come home and watch basketball on television or American football or play Madden on their PlayStations. Um, but NBC, and remember, this isn't NBC, the terrestrial network. It's an NBC cable okay. station, a specific sports station that's showing the Premier League. And what they're counting on is pretty much the same thing that um, that English programmers who put American football are counting on, that there is a, a dedicated following, that it will grow, and that these people are willing to go out of their way to find it. So that in, in Britain, for example, Sky also show American football, but you have to subscribe to Sky to see that. And so Sky are willing to show that because it drives a certain, not a huge number, but a certain number of subscriptions uh, to that. And NBC, I think, are, are taking the long term. But this is a boom sport, and if we can get in now, we can attract an audience. It's going to give our cable network better ratings. 
um, is going to put it on more cable systems, which means more money for NBC that way, as well as the advertising money. David Beckham, not necessarily the brightest bulb in the in the stadium lights, but I think David Beckham is looking like a lot of people had at the immigrant population in Miami, the Latino population in Miami, and thinking, why don't these people follow, why wouldn't they follow a, a, a MLS team, say, in Miami? There's The reason they don't primarily is that they follow their own domestic leagues when they move to America, just like the, the Mexican population in Los Angeles tends to watch Mexican football on, on Univision or, or um, whoever's is Telev Televista or whoever's got it um, uh, on the side. So they watch Mexican league games. They don't go to LA Galaxy games in, in the same way. Um, plus what, what the teams fail to realize in a sense is that there's a tradition in uh, certainly in Mexico and in most of Latin America too of a walk-up market. You know, as you don't buy tickets three weeks in advance for the game. You go there on Saturday afternoon and you buy your ticket and go in uh, to that. And that's very hard for in Los Angeles to um, uh, to make work in terms of, of the galaxy. Because you know, they've, they've tried Mexican ownership. Um, um, no, I'm sorry, they haven't tried it. With I mean, Mexican teams do own teams like Chivas is owned by a, by a Mexican team in the MLS. But I think they're actually, they were negotiating to have a second team in Los Angeles that was going to be... A, Mexican team. I may be wrong about that, but it's really interesting. Um, let's let's move on to the other American game, baseball, um, which doesn't seem to have gotten the traction here in uh, the UK uh, that football has. Do you think that's a fair statement? And if so, why is that? Oh, it's definitely a fair statement. Um, and the main reason is it's not as it's not as easy a sell on television as American football. American football, even if you don't understand the rules, which actually are not that complicated, you can still appreciate the smash of the players, the, the long pass that gets completed. It's the tackling, the, you know, the, the fearsomeness of the tackling or blocking. Baseball are more subtle, subtle pleasures, and they don't come as regularly. Um, if you watch a football game, there's bam on every play. Baseball, it's it's a ball, it's a strike, it's a foul ball, it's another ball, it's a strike, he's out. Um, you can't guarantee that something exciting is going to happen. And from a television point of view, you can never guarantee how long the game is going to last, even within, within bounds. I mean, it, it's really difficult. So um, it's a hard, I know this is because I worked for Major League Baseball trying to sell baseball in Europe mm -hmm. to, to broadcasters and trying to develop the game here. And it is a very difficult thing. Um, like American football, it's a difficult sport as a participant sport to sell because it's so cost intensive. A lot of equipment, specialized fields, especially for baseball. Um, lots of, you need more than one referee uh, for a match who has to know what he's doing. Um, it, it's, it's hard. We, we really tried to push youth baseball um, into, the, into British schools when I was working with some success, but, but limited success on the basis of playing t-ball for kids and then softball for both boys and girls so that you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily stream the kids into baseball and softball for girls until they were maybe 12, 11 or 12 years old. And there isn't enough crossover for the girls with netball 
Well, to, netball is more of a basketball. I mean, um, uh, rounders, yeah, rounders. Rounders. Well, you see, that's 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 the other problem baseball has in this country specifically is that it's immediately associated with rounders and everybody then poo-poos it um, as as being a silly game. Um, in fact, they were you know the names were interchangeable and you'll find references in Britain in the mid 18th century to baseball to people playing baseball. Jane Austen huh. writes about it in really? in um, in um, Persuasion, I think is is Northanger Abbey. In Northanger Abbey, there's a reference to them playing at, at baseball, um, which is which is um, really interesting. Now, baseball's relatively big in Italy and in Holland, which is primarily the result of, in Italy, of American troops. In Holland, actually, of one Dutchman who went to university in the States and loved baseball and came back and, and started a program. And there have been Italian, and there have been quite a few Dutch players in the major leagues. Um, although now most of the good Dutch players actually come from the um, Antilles and Curaçao and Aruba. And they, they play very good, a very high standard of baseball on those islands. Um, but those are the really only two places in Europe where you'll find, you know, a high, uh, a relatively high level of, of baseball being played. And um, Britain's only just now got their first kind of specialist baseball field. It's not even a stadium, but it is a field with a mound and, and base paths laid Where out. Where is it? Um, that's a good question. Somewhere just north of London. <laughs> I've never seen it. It's so new, I've never seen it. My field of dreams. There we go. Um, let's talk about the appetite for for basketball um, in this country. Basketball is a funny situation because it is a worldwide game. I mean, basketball can make an argument that it's, in, in one sense, more popular than soccer, in that it's played in more countries, you know, um, than than soccer. Um, one of the anomalies of soccer, where when you hear British people tell you that you know America is the only country where it's not the top sport, you know, there are numerous countries where it's not the top sport, including the three biggest countries in the world: China, India, and the U.S. And like India, the area where base where um, soccer is not the primary sport is the British Commonwealth. It's very strange that, that the, the empire never spread. It spread rugby and it spread cricket, but it didn't spread soccer. So that in Australia or New Zealand or uh, Pakistan or Sri Lanka or Bangladesh or India or Canada, it's not the major sport. I um, mean, Ireland, it's not the major sport, you know, just, just across the river. But if you, if you say this to British people, they look at you and, you know, you're not understanding the concept. Anyway, basketball is, is very, very big in Europe. Um, it's arguably the biggest sport in Greece now. You know, it's it's certainly just behind football in Turkey. It's a strong second in um, among team sports in, in Spain and Italy. It's come on leaps and bounds in France, uh, both men and women, women's basketball. Um, but it hasn't really made the jump across to, to Britain. And the main reason for that, I think, is that the British don't like indoor sports in the winter because they don't feel uncomfortable if they're inside when the weather's bad. They really want to be standing out in, in the rain and the wind and, and <laughs> you know, enduring unnecessary hardship, which George Mikesh in his books about Britain said was the, you know, the number one definer of the British character was that they love to endure hardship and the hardship that gives them the most satisfaction to endure is unnecessary hardship. So, you know, if you have the choice between standing on a, on a muddy pitch and or in, or in a leaky stand and watching a you know got 11 guys in shorts pulling each other down by the shirts or going indoors and watching these guys run up and down very athletically uh, they'll always choose um, the former plus there's too many points 
it's too easy to score in basketball, so that offends their sense of hardship as well. Um, a one nothing football match is much more preferable to 111 to 109 basketball game. Um, and Britain's starting to produce basketball players as well. Um, most famously, John Amici, who, was in the, who I did the Olympics with for the BBC and um, played in the NBA for, for quite a while and, and um, very bravely came out as well as a gay um, basketball player. And up until um, Jason Collins came out last year, he was the world's biggest gay man. <laughs> um, when Jason Collins came out, I actually called John. I said, hey, you're not the world's biggest gay man anymore. And he said, I'm sure there's someone bigger than me somewhere who just hasn't come out. Um, but um, I think basketball, um, you know, it's become, it's huge in Argentina as well, uh, although not as huge as football. But um, um, And the Argentines also play rugby, which is, you know, which is interesting to a very high standard. Um, and it's it's very big in Australia. Um, it's become, it's probably the third sport now in, in New Zealand um, because rugby, it, there's, there's a soccer mom factor too in, in like in New Zealand where rugby has become like American football in America and a lot of mothers don't want their kids playing rugby and you know, suffering um, injury as a result. But, um, you know, basketball is, it, in a way, it should have taken over in the mid-90s in the Michael Jordan phenomenon. And of all the sports, it's the easiest one to sell with one personality because your basketball personalities are so visible. There's no helmets. There's no batting helmets. They're in shorts. You can see their whole body. Um, and one person can also change a team in a way that is almost impossible in most team sports. You can't just add one player and automatically turn your team into a winner. But in basketball, you can. You know, one really good center can transform a team. One Michael Jordan can help transform a team. So um, in that sense, it's very, it's, very much, it's very much fun to watch because teams can get better so quickly. You know, there was a generation of players, four or five excellent players that came up in Yugoslavia in the late 80s. You know, then there was a group from Lithuania, which is real for a small country, is a real basketball power. Then you had a uh, then you had a couple in Greece, and, and you had three or four in, in in this old Soviet Union now now playing for Russia. Or, um, and so you can see a country just you know like a generation comes along, and a generation of basketball only has to be three or four players. That's fascinating. Um, I, I want. Now I'd like to, to ask you the question that I've been dying to have the answer to uh, ever since I moved to this country. <laughs> um, and I want to talk about lacrosse. Oh, right. uh, I thought you were going to ask, why, why would anyone eat Brussels sprouts? <laughs> that too. Um, and it's, it's a sport, I think, that many Tanager listeners played in school and college in the U.S. and are now watching their daughters play in the U.K. So can you help me understand how this Native American <laughs> war game ended up becoming the hot sport at posh girls' schools in the United Kingdom? Um, that's a, it's an interesting question. I played men's lacrosse here in Britain for for many years, I mean, in, into my 40s, till till my body started insisting that I stop doing it. Um, but that's a very limited. Um, it was a very limited area uh, where, and, and a lot of the players were U.S. expats, um, or in, and a lot of short-term expats 
um, from from the area where we're sitting right now, you know, who are working in the city or we're working in law, and it come over on on assignment. Um, I think I think it has something to do with the reason that it it is the um, um, even in the men's game, it, it remains a sort of prep school game in the States. That's changing a bit, but still the big draws, the big areas of draw for lacrosse players are Long Island, Maryland, to an extent the the Mohawk River Valley, um, and prep schools all over the East Coast and, and now all over the country because it, it really has spread to, to prep schools all over the country. So there's a certain sense that um, in in the men's game, that, it, that it's a sport of, of sort of skill and controlled violence, that sort of in the way that they used to say rugby was the sport for hooligans played by gentlemen. Um, now, when you get to the, the women's game, it's it's very much like hockey, but much more interesting, you know, much more fun to play. And and I think that that you can play it standing up for one thing. You don't have to be crouched over the whole time running running. Um, Running around with with your stick on the ground, so I, I think that that played into it um, to some extent. And then it's really one of those phenomenon where it comes to one or two places and then spreads because it's enjoyed in those places and it happened to come to the right places. You know, when it first came over to this country, the the hotbed of lacrosse for men in in Britain are the uh, grammar schools in the Stockport area. Um, and there aren't that many grammar schools left in Great Britain, but but that's where it was taken up. Um, they're not they're not private schools, but they were selective state schools at the time. And it, it, for some reason, it was the perfect sport for them. So you still go up there, and there's a very active sort of ten schools or so that that produce virtually all the good lacrosse players in this country. Um, and then you know, worldwide, it's only played U.S., Canada, Australia for the which is a spillover from Great Britain, um, Britain, and it's become quite popular, strangely enough, in Japan. And oh. again, it's the logic is the same. Where it's played in Japan is the elite eight universities, um, and it's you know they're the Ivy League of, of Japan basically, and they are key, dead keen on lacrosse. They, um, it's amazing, and um, and actually very pretty very good at it. The only other thing in the World Championships is that the Iroquois Nation plays in the World Championships as a separate country. I didn't know that. And and when the World Championships, I did the World Championships, broadcast them um, in Manchester in the 90s. Um, the final was held in, at Barry Football Ground. They came back to Manchester two years ago, I, I believe it was. And there was a huge um, controversy because the British would not let the Iroquois Nation travel on their own passports because they don't have electronic passports. They're issued by the tribe and they're still issued in the old fashioned way. And they were, I think, acting on the advice of the US who weren't gonna let them travel on it anyway. <laughs> but this was a way of passing the buck. And in the end, I think um, Hillary Clinton asked them, the British, for a waiver on, on the rule so that they could get there. Um, knowing that they probably wouldn't be allowed to. But this is going to be a problem from now on for the Iroquois Nation, unless they can issue biometric passports. Who knew? <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. Well, um, when I started playing lacrosse, you know, Mohawk Indians, basically, made all of the lacrosse sticks that everybody used. Wow. So your coach would go up every year you'd, you know, to the fact 
well, it wasn't quite a factory, but the, you know, up there and negotiate for sticks. And the best programs always got the best sticks, um, you know, because they improved it. But but until plastic came along and changed the whole game, you know, in, in many ways. But it's a completely different game to when I play um, now. That's a great story. <laughs> um, for for my last question, I, I just want to switch gears for a moment and, and turn to the uh, London Olympic Games. It was so much fun. Oh yeah. To be here, what a what an atmosphere. T- tell us a little bit uh, about what it was like to be in the commentators' box. I was shocked. I mean, the biggest shock to me the bit, was that everything worked so well. I was just amazed. You know, this is a country where if something can go wrong, it certainly will, because nobody will have bothered to think about that it might go wrong. And the Olympics functioned brilliantly. And and as is true with most Olympics, most of the um, predictions of gloom and doom never came to be. I mean, I've worked at a lot of Olympics in my time. And if it's the Winter Games, there's always either going to be too much snow or no snow at all. You, You know that that's going to happen. Summer Games, it's always going to be too hot transportation's not going to work, there won't be any hotel rooms, and none of that came to pass in London. In fact, the weather was absolutely brilliant. Um, for me personally, it was it was actually quite boring in the sense that I was staying in a not-so-great hotel in Stratford, only about half a mile from um, the entrance to the Olympic Park, and, and maybe a mile or so, a mile and a half from, from the arena where we were working. But it was a nightmare trip every day to walk it, you know, just because of the crowds and and all that kind of stuff. But I literally didn't see very much apart from Stratford and and the Olympic Plaza, which is was built as a giant shopping center to funnel all the spectators through through a mall, basically, which was not the best way of crowd control that you could have thought of. That was probably the one negative. But when you're at an Olympics, whether you're participating or whether you're commentating or or you're a spectator or even if you're not even if you're just in the city what happens is that the olympics takes over the the entire world that you're in for that two weeks um so that you basically don't think about anything else you know you don't really read the paper for outside news you're not paying you know bbc and and the other tv channels are not paying a whole lot of attention to what's going on in the rest of the world you're focused on this one sporting event because it is so big and it is so much fun um and for me it was three games in a day um men one day women the next men one day women the next and john and i would um would do three games um which would go out um, red button on computer, occasionally on BBC's cable channels. Every now and again, a little bit would sneak into BBC One or BBC Two, um, especially if one of the British teams was playing. And 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 they did, they didn't do well in terms of wins, but they did very well in terms of competing. And you know, there were a couple of games both the men's and the women's team should have won and didn't. Um, and uh, so their their final standings would have been better. And the rest of the time, what we were doing was going out to the rest of the world as the host feed, basically. And when we weren't doing it, the other commentators were generally the Australians um, going out to the rest of the world, um, which would have been an interesting thing. But we were, John and I were basically in Olympic mode. You know, you got back, we tended to do the last game, so we didn't get back to the hotel any earlier than one in the morning. Um, and then you get up you know, hoping your your voice is still there the next day. The first couple of days were really rough. I was sucking throat sweets like crazy. 
um, you know, and, and you don't really have enough time to do anything else by the, before you have to then get get back into the into the grounds and do it. And the basketball was was absolutely fascinating. It was it was a great tournament. Um, I loved being that close, um, you know, to to everybody, being able to um, at least go to press conferences and things and, and ask questions. You you didn't really have a lot of access, um, you know, to get close because security is much tighter than it was when I did my first Olympics in Montreal in, in 1976. And um, the uh, I got to bring my son along, you know, got tickets beforehand for some of the basketball and. And one of the games, I managed to sneak him into the commentary position before we actually went on air, um, even though he didn't have the credentials to do it. So I have this nice picture of him with a headset on, sitting next to me. And you know, that's something I'll treasure um, for a long time. And my son is half New Zealand, uh, more and we went with his New Zealand grandfather to water polo, and Australia was playing Greece. And he said, um, "Well, who are we rooting for?" And I said, "Well, Greece, of course." And he said, "Why?" And and uh, his his grandfather said, well, because you're a New Zealander and you root for whoever's playing Australia. And Nate said, I thought New Zealand was part of Australia. And his grandfather nearly nearly died. Um, <laughs> it, it was terrible. Um, but for me, the highlight of the Olympics, actually, and, and I achieved a certain amount of notoriety to the point where this was the fourth or fifth most clicked on thing on the BBC's website all year. After Argentina beat Brazil, the Argentinians were celebrating on the court and John and I were told to wrap up. So I turned away from the court to face John, who's six foot nine. So I'm look I'm actually looking up to him. And I'm winding up and about and I ask him a question and he doesn't answer, but he goes, Hello. And just as I'm thinking, what does that mean? I get whacked on the head in the literally over my headset, in, in the ear, by a basketball. And I go, ow, this is audible on the on the tape. And, you know, after a second or so, I turn around and the guys in front of us, in the press row in front of us, are throwing the basketball back and forth. So I assumed that they had thrown it and it had hit me. And I go, I go, some idiots in the row in front are throwing a basketball around. It just hit me in the head. And then John goes, no, actually, it came from the court. <laughs> And I said, oh, well, in that case, that hasn't happened before. And what had happened was one of the Argentine players, Pablo Prigioni, had kicked the ball, celebrating, into the stands and managed to kick it directly into my head, about 30 rows up in the stands. So you can't actually see that. But I am now known on the Internet as angry commentator hit by, <laughs> hit by ball. And that will be my living legacy in, in Great Britain. You know, you, you commentate for 20 years on sport and you go down in history as the angry commentator who got hit in the head. Well, angry commentator, I think this has been a really terrific conversation, uh, a whirlwind tour of, of sports in this country and in Europe. Uh, we, you know, we've been going up to get lacrosse sticks from from Indian reservations. Um, thank you so much. Oh, it's a pleasure for being on Tanner's Your Dog.